Good morning. Welcome, Life Bridge. Thank you once again for joining us online as we seek to bridge the gap as a church while we're unable to uh, meet in person together uh, on Sundays for our worship services and even for our discovery hour. For those of you who are watching for the first time, man, thanks for joining us online this morning. We really appreciate it. And, and if you're not part of a church family and you're watching with us this morning, uh, we want you to know you're welcome and we appreciate you uh, tuning in and joining with us. I trust you're surviving the first week of our city's stay-at-home order. And uh, I know that I'm thankful that in the midst of these uncertain times that God is our refuge He is our strength in that we can ground our lives in the certainty of His Word. And so with that in mind, I want to invite you uh, to grab your Bibles, open them up, and uh, as we look into God's Word here in Matthew chapter 27. And so open your Bibles to Matthew 27, or um, you know, if if you have a device that's separate from what you're watching on, you can turn into your Bibles there as well and follow along. As I read God's Word here in Matthew chapter 27, we're in verses 27 through 44. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hell, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the school, They offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others? He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Let's bow our heads and begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to open up your word, to look at it. Lord, we ask that you would open up our hearts as we do so. You would open up our minds to receive it. And Lord, may your word convict us and challenge us where necessary. We thank you that even now, on this Lord's Day, that as thousands of churches are proclaiming your word, that it would go out and it would bear fruit among millions and millions of people, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity we have as LifeBridge to be a part of that. 
of your work in and through our church. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this past week, our city and our country has been focused on one thing, and that is the coronavirus and its impact on our lives. We've all been affected directly or indirectly by COVID-19. We're all having to adopt to a new way of living as our lives have been turned upside down. And we're probably all wondering how much more will, be, will we be affected by this virus before it's all said and done. Now, while we can't ignore what's going on in our city and even across our country and around the world, I pray my heart's desire is that God is using this virus to turn people's hearts toward Jesus Christ. For it is only in Jesus Christ where we can find true comfort and real hope and lasting peace. You know, so many people are looking to the government for help in this time of crisis. And and while it is certainly true that our government has a biblical role to play, we need to understand that, that the government is limited in what it can do. But our God is unlimited in what He can do. Our God is sovereign over all things. He reigns over disease and death through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so it's for this reason that I want us to focus on Jesus Christ as we continue in the passion of Christ. And in particular this morning, I want us to focus on the cross of Christ. Now that may seem a bit odd to focus on the cross. After all, when you consider the cross is where people go to die. And yet there is hope in the cross of Jesus Christ. For that is where true life, eternal life, begins. And isn't that what people need now more than ever in the midst of this pandemic? Everything in the book of Matthew has really been leading us up to this point. Leading us to the cross of Christ. After all, this is why Jesus came. He was born to die in order to save us from our sins. And the main thing that Matthew wants us to see in this particular passage is the humiliation of Jesus. Over and over again, Jesus endures mockery. Mockery from the Romans. And then more mockery from the Jews. Everyone ridiculed Jesus because they saw him as this weak Empathetic figure whose grand claim as the Messiah were ending in seeming defeat on the cross. They saw it as pathetic. They saw it as laughable. But the irony in all this, the irony is that the cross was actually the pinnacle of his glory. Think about it. What people thought discredited Jesus' claim as the Messiah was the very point of his coming. What people thought was A failure of his mission was the very means of accomplishing his mission. The absolute darkest hour of humanity was the moment of the world's redemption. And so there is great irony even in the humiliation of Jesus on a cross. That's what Matthew wants us to see. He's recorded this for us to show us something. And that is the humiliation of Jesus Christ. In fact, the cross here is the very pinnacle of Jesus humbling himself to save us. And having seen the humiliation of Jesus, that should compel a response from us. Therefore, let us be humbled by what Jesus endured for us. 
Now you may be wondering, well, what did Jesus endure for us? Well, Matthew tells us, and what we're going to see in particular here this morning is is that Jesus endured mocking, he endured a crucifixion, and he endured even more mocking. And so notice this. Number one, Jesus is mocked by the Roman soldiers. Now what's really interesting is of all the historical details surrounding the suffering of Jesus Christ, the passion of Christ, is Matthew focuses on the mocking of Jesus here in this passage. Since Jesus has been convicted of being a king, the Roman soldiers decided to have some fun at his expense. And so according to verse 27, it says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And this battalion, listen, it could have included as many as 600 soldiers if everyone was present. And so Pilate's soldiers engaged in some cruel horseplay, dressing Jesus as a king. They stripped Jesus of his clothes. They put a scarlet robe on him, pretending that he is some kind of royal king. Next, they twist together a crown of thorns and and put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and pretend it's a scepter. And then kneeling before Jesus, they mocked him, saying, Hell, king of the Jews. And then they concluded their mockery by spitting in his face and hitting him on the head with the mock scepter. Once the soldiers are finished mocking Jesus, they they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes back on him and led him away to crucify him. Now, as you might imagine, the boisterous shouts and the, the laughs as each soldier tried to outdo the other in this mock ceremony. But here's the irony of their mocking. The Roman soldiers mocked Jesus as king of the Jews, not realizing that Jesus is king overall. But Matthew knows, and we know, and God certainly knows, that Jesus really is the king of the Jews. In fact, Matthew reminds us of this reality all throughout his gospel. You go back to chapter 2, and the wise men ask, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? As Jesus begins his public ministry, he is constantly talking about the kingdom of God. And in some of the stories that Jesus tells, he makes himself out to be the king. The same theme is raised in the trial before Pilate when he asked Jesus in verse 11, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies, Yes, it is as you say. Even the charge against Jesus is nailed to the cross above his head, and it says, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. But while the soldiers mock Jesus as this king of the Jews, Matthew knows, we now know, And again, God certainly knows that Jesus really is the king of the Jews. You see, the deeper irony of all this is that their mockery was meant to be ironic. When they cry out, hell, king of the Jews, what they mean is the very exact opposite. Jesus is not the king, but rather he's some pathetic criminal. And yet the irony here is that while the soldiers mock Jesus as this pathetic criminal, the words they use actually tell the truth, the opposite of what they mean, that Jesus really is the king. And that's the whole point of these verses. That's what Matthew wants us to see here, that the one who is mocked as king is the king. 
Now, we know from the rest of Scripture that Jesus is more than just king of the Jews. He is king over all. Jesus is Lord over all. Jesus is the king of the universe. Jesus is king over the soldiers who are mocking him. And Jesus is king over you and me. And the Apostle Paul assures us in Philippians chapter 2 that one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord and king. And so may we be humbled that the king of kings humbled himself to save us. After Jesus is mocked by the Roman soldiers, we find next that Jesus is now crucified at a place called Golgotha. The Romans had three state-sanctioned forms of execution available to them. But crucifixion, by far and away, was the most horrible and most agonizing. In fact, crucifixion was so shameful and so painful that no Roman citizen was ever crucified. The Roman writer Cicero called crucifixion a most cruel and disgusting punishment. It's impossible to find the word for such an abomination. He goes on and he says, Let the very mention of the cross be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. And so to the average Roman citizen, crucifixion was this awful, horrible way to die. And it was reserved only for the most vile criminal. And then you were not even really meant to talk about it. The Jews, on the other hand, The Jewish people equated being strung up on a cross with the Old Testament description of being hung on a tree. And that meant that such a person is under God's curse. Here's the point Matthew wants us to see. Crucifixion was awful. It was painful and it was shameful. And no Roman would ever expect anyone worth anything to die on a cross. And no Jewish person would ever expect God's Messiah to die on a cross. And yet the cross is where the King of Kings humbly went for you and me. In the Roman world, the upright of the cross, that is the the vertical portion of the cross, the vertical beam, was typically left in the ground at the place of crucifixion. And usually near a public road or a public thoroughfare so that as many people as possible could witness the torment and would learn to fear the Roman authorities. The horizontal beam was then carried by the victim out to the place of crucifixion. But Jesus is now so weak that he cannot even manage to carry this chunk of wood on his shoulder to the place of crucifixion. And so the soldiers exercised their right to draft a bystander for the task. Matthew tells us in verse 32, As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And so with Simon's help, it says in verse 33 that they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And that probably is referring to the amount of death that that happened there, or perhaps even the area had the look of a skull. Verse 34 indicates that the soldiers then offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Some say this drink was meant as a sort of a a narcotic, as a way to help relieve the pain. However, gall created a, a very bitter taste. And so it seems 
out of character even for a Roman soldier to offer any kind of comfort to a criminal who's being crucified. And so more likely, this drink was just another way to mock and torment Jesus Christ. The Roman soldiers pretended to offer wine to Jesus in order to comfort him. But in reality, this drink was designed to make him more thirsty. Either way, we get this amazing picture of what Jesus was willing to go through for you in order to save us. And then finally, Jesus is crucified. But it is interesting to note that the Gospels don't emphasize the crucifixion itself. Matthew simply says, in summary, in verse 35, and when they had crucified him. Instead, Matthew records what the Roman soldiers did after they crucified Jesus. Verse 35 tells us they divided his garments among them by casting lots. You see, the cross was meant to be an instrument of shame as well as pain. Therefore, Jesus was crucified completely naked. And since clothing was somewhat expensive in that day, the soldiers gambled to determine who would actually gain possession of Jesus' clothes. And of course, above the head, most of us are familiar with this, that the most criminals that were being crucified, above their head, the Romans would post the charges. It was often written on a white tablet and black or red letters and the charges against jesus read this is jesus the king of the jews no doubt Pilate, the governor intended it to be an offensive statement to the jewish people but matthew includes it here for us because the irony of it all is significant after all jesus really is the king of the jews in fact that's the the whole message of matthew's gospel that Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is the king who has come, the king of the Jews. But also notice here where Jesus is located. According to verse 38, Jesus is crucified between two robbers, one on either side. And the irony of this is thick. The king of Israel, think about it, the son of God, the righteous one, hangs on a cross between two rebels or two insurrectionists. I mean, could Jesus look any more like a failure than this? It appears the religious rulers have won as Jesus now hangs on a cross. I mean, this is terrible, but it gets even worse. Jesus is not only mocked by the Roman soldiers, but we also see that Jesus is mocked by the Jewish people. Now, to be sure, there is a a certain logic to their mocking. In fact, in their reasoning, if Jesus were really the Messiah, then he would hardly be hanging on a cross between two robbers. After all, no Messiah, no king could die this way. You see, as they see it, Jesus' crucifixion proves he's an imposter. Therefore, they mock Jesus all the more as he hung on the cross. But even their mocking is filled with irony that communicates truth. In fact, the irony of their mocking here, notice it here, the people passing by mock that Jesus is powerless to save. Powerless to save himself, even though he is the Son of God. Now, since crucifixions, as we already learned, were held in public places, Matthew tells us in verse 39, And those who passed by 
derided him or, or mocked him, wagging their heads. Notice what the crowd said in their mocking in verse 40. They mock up to Jesus and say, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so, yes, it's true. Jesus had talked about destroying and rebuilding the temple in three days. And yet, here Jesus hangs, utterly powerless, on a Roman cross. Once again, the mockers think they are indulging in great irony. Jesus claims so much power, but look at him now on a cross. And so they cry out, save yourself, which, of course, they utter sarcastically. Since they are convinced Jesus is helpless, that he's powerless, and he cannot do a thing to save himself. But we know that Jesus' demonstration of power is displayed in the weakness of the cross. In fact, looking back, we know what Jesus meant when he said in John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. But Jesus' opponents didn't have a clue what he meant. At the time, Jesus' own disciples had no idea what he meant. But after Jesus was raised from the dead, John says that the disciples remembered his words and they knew he was talking about his body. Here's the irony of it all. You see, the crowd thinks they are witty as they mock Jesus and laugh at his weakness on the cross after claiming that he could destroy the temple and raise it in three days. But what the crowd fails to understand is that the only way Jesus will save himself and save his people is by hanging on that wretched cross in utter powerlessness. And so in a twist of irony, the words the mockers used to hurl insults and condescending sneers actually describe what is bringing about the salvation of the Lord. But it doesn't stop there. That's the passerbys mocking Jesus, but it gets worse. The religious leaders now chime in and mock him as well. And we see that they mock that Jesus saved others, but he cannot save himself. Notice what these religious leaders say in verse 42. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Again, there's a a bit of logic in their mocking. After all, think about it. Jesus healed the sick. He cast out demons. He fed the hungry. And he even raised the dead. But now he can't save himself from crucifixion. So, therefore, he can't be much of a savior. And so even their affirmation that Jesus, quote, saved others is uttered with irony in a way that undermines his ability. In other words, the mockers are saying, quote, this savior is a disappointment and failure since he can't save himself from a cross. But once again, these mockers speak better than they know. Matthew knows. And now we know, and God certainly knows, that in one sense, if Jesus is to save others, then he really cannot save himself. Now what's interesting is you take this word save and you trace it back through Matthew. And the first time the word save is actually mentioned in Matthew is when God tells Joseph in a dream in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, she, speaking about Mary, will give birth to a son 
And you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. You see, Matthew is giving us some insight into our Savior's mission. Jesus came. Why? To save us from our sins. And so the entire Gospel of Matthew must be read with this opening announcement in mind. The deeper irony is that in a way these mockers did not understand, they were speaking truth. You see, if Jesus had saved himself, then he could not have saved others. Why? Because the only way Jesus could save others was precisely by not saving himself on the cross. And so in another twist of irony, these mockers spoke the truth they themselves did not see, that they were blind to. The Savior who can't save himself saves others through his death on the cross. One of the reasons why these mockers were so blind is that they thought in terms of merely physical restraints. And so when they said he can't save himself, what they meant is that the nails held Jesus there. And the soldiers who were guarding Jesus prevented any possibility of rescue. His powerlessness, his weakness, in other words, guaranteed his death. But for these mockers, the words, he can't save himself, expressed a a physical impossibility. But those who know who Jesus is, listen, we are fully aware that nails and soldiers cannot stand in the way of Jesus. You see, the truth of the matter is, Jesus could not save himself, but not because of any physical constraints, but because of of a moral imperative. You see, Jesus came to do his Father's will, and he would not be deflected from it. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prayed, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus was compelled by such a divine mission that disobedience to his Father's will was unthinkable. And so it was not nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was not soldiers that were guarding him that prevented him from saving himself. It was his resolution to do his father's will. And within that framework, it was his love for sinners like you and me that Jesus could not and would not save himself. But the religious leaders were not done. They continue on mocking him. And this time they mocked at Jesus trust in God, but God has abandoned him. God will not deliver him. And so still sneering, the religious leaders cry out in verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And once again, their words are meant to convey ironic sarcasm. When they said, He trusts in God. What they really mean is that Jesus' trust could not have been real. It could not have been valid, for he has been abandoned by God. Otherwise, why would Jesus be hanging on the cross? For his father surely would have delivered him. Adding insult to injury, verse 44 says, And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. But Matthew knows. We know. And God certainly knows that Jesus does indeed 
trust in God. The deeper irony of verse 43 is that the mockers here once again are speaking better than they know. Jesus does trust his heavenly father as he is crucified on the cross for you and for me. And so let us behold the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen, the cross showcases the greatest irony of all. That when it looked as if everything was going wrong, It was at that very point in time when God was making things right. The cross looked like a a display of weakness, but it was the greatest display of power. The cross looked like something ugly, but it was the most beautiful thing in the world. The cross looked like defeat, but it was victory over Satan and sin. It is only through the cross of Christ that our salvation is even possible. Listen, I know it may look like an act of cruelty and hatred on God's part as his son died naked on a cross. But it was, in fact, God showing us his love for the world. The Apostle Paul testifies of this in Romans 5, verse 8, when he writes, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, the world thinks the cross of Christ is crazy. It always has. It always will. But to those who believe, the cross is our only hope for salvation. Jesus' death saves. Isn't that ironic? And yet the cross is the most beautiful and glorious irony in history. Jesus' death saves, but listen, it only saves those who believe. Did you notice what the religious leaders said in their mocking? They claimed that if Jesus came down from the cross, then they would what? That they would believe in him. That's natural enough. Because their perception of power is rather worldly. Even today, people say, The same thing. Things like, well, I believe in Jesus if he writes his name in the clouds. I I will believe in Jesus if he cures me of cancer. I will believe in Jesus if he stops this terrible coronavirus. Basically, what we are saying with that is, I will believe in Jesus if he does whatever I ask of him right now. But as General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, once said, it is precisely because Jesus would not come down from the cross, that we believe in him. You see, we believe in Jesus as Savior precisely because he stayed on the cross to die and came down only to be buried and rose again three days later. And so, hallelujah, what a Savior. Jesus humbled himself to save us. Therefore, let us now be humbled by what Jesus did for us on the cross. But what does that mean, to be humbled? What does that look like? How do we do this? Well, it simply means this, and this is our response. This should be my response. What Jesus did for you and me should compel this response on behalf of myself and behalf of you. And that response is this. Believe in Jesus as your Savior. And then worship him as your king. Yes, Matthew wants you to see 
the humiliation of Jesus Christ. He wants you to see and to visualize Jesus dying on a cross for you. He wants you to also hear the mocking that he endured for you. That's why it's recorded for us. And so by all means, see Jesus on the cross. Hear the mocking he endured for you. But understand, all of that is so that we will believe in Jesus as our Savior and then worship him as our King. Listen, the most tragic of all ironies would be to see Jesus hanging on a cross and to hear about the cross of Christ and to hear these ironies, these mockings, and yet never believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, to never receive him for the forgiveness of your sins and then to die in your sins. That would be the greatest tragedy of all. And so let us be humbled by what Jesus did for you. Listen, if you haven't already, believe him as your Savior. And once we do, listen, let the cross compel us then to worship him as our king. For he really is, he truly is the king of kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. And as we bow our heads, and even where you're at in your home, I invite you to bow your heads for a moment here. And I invite you, if you haven't already, to to humble yourself. To humble yourself enough to come before Jesus Christ, to go to the cross and confess your sins before Him, to admit your need for a Savior, to put your trust in Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness for your sins and the gift of eternal life. Man, if that is your heart's desire, even now this morning, you can pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and that I cannot save myself. I repent of my sins by changing my mind about the way I've been living. And by faith, I ask you to forgive me of my sins and receive your gift of salvation. I believe you are the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and that you rose again. Thank you for giving me the gift of eternal life. I receive you by faith as my Savior and Lord. Make me into the person you want me to be. Amen. You know, our mission here at LifeBridge is to to bridge the gap with the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we believe the gospel is where hope is found, true and lasting hope in the peace of Jesus Christ. And and one way that you can help us is by continuing to financially give in order for us to continue our mission here at LifeBridge. You know, your giving, it honors the Lord and it fuels our mission to bridge the gap here in Kansas City and around the world through our missionary partners. And the easiest way to give is online through our church website. You can go to wearelifebridge.com when we're done here, and you can go to the giving link and set up uh, giving online. It's, it's, it's safe, it's simple, it's secure. And, uh, and if you've never done this before, I encourage you to consider giving online as an option, especially while we're unable to meet in person together here on our church campus. Obviously, you may also 
uh, mail in your, your offering and your tithes. And some of you are, have already done that. And thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness uh, in your giving. And so you can give online. You can mail it in. And we appreciate your continued faithfulness in giving. And if you have any questions, if you have any needs, listen, don't hesitate to contact us here at LifeBridge. We are still here to serve you any way we can, especially in the midst of this pandemic. And so I hope you'll join us again next Sunday online as we continue in the Passion of Christ. In fact, next Sunday is a Palm Sunday. And so I hope you'll join us 1045 a.m. In the meantime, stay strong in the Lord. Stay connected during the week. And you can do stay connected to LifeBridge through our website where we have a lot of different information that we're trying to put out each week so you know what's going on in the life of our church. And you can also stay connected through our Facebook page by which you're watching this even now. And so until then, you stay strong in the Lord. Stay grounded in His Word. Stay connected to other Christ followers.